my father was an alcoholic. He drank way too much. When he was sober, he was compassionate and friendly and loving and stuff like that. But when he got drunk, my memories of him was that he was uh, aggressive. That I attributed to him being drunk. So I saw alcohol as, as not being uh, uh, something that I wanted to do because I thought it changed him for the worse. My phone rang and it was my youngest daughter on the phone. She's crying on the phone. Mummy just told me you're not going to my zone running carnival this year. And I said, oh, I can't make it. And, and, and I said, this is going, but, but get mummy to put you on afterwards and tell me all about it. I want you to be there. I pulled over into a garage at Ride and sat there for about 15 minutes after the phone call because my head was spinning. I'm thinking, what sort, of, what sort of a father am I? What sort of a person am I? So what happened was I made the decision in the car then and there that I was gonna quit at the end of the year. Anyhow, cut long story short, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for my daughter to, for, that, for that phone call because I actually quit coaching, uh, footy coaching, and I moved in this direction that I've been doing for 20 years now, which is working with corporates. A guy who was a friend of my dad's, his name was, was um, Mick Kokas, Mr. Kokas, I used to refer to him as, and he was the, the person who really came into my life that gave me a sense of deep sense of belief. One day the, he met with me and he, he said, when you go to bed tonight, he said, just have a think about what you would dream to, to do if you could dream the biggest dream possible. And I went to bed that night and, um, and all I could think about was playing for the, for the Balmain Tigers. Optimise performance through adapting your physical, psychological and emotional state. Hello, it's Andrew May, and welcome to another episode of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Today's guest is someone I've looked up to for a long time. In fact, the first time I heard him speak was back in high school in 1988 when I was in year 10 at St. John's College in Dubbo. Wayne Pierce played 193 NRL games for the Balmain Tigers, and he was their captain. He is a New South Wales and Australian representative. He's listed as one of the 100 greatest NRL players of all time. He's a rugby league hall of famer, an NRL commentator. It's a long list, ladies and gentlemen. Go get a cup of tea and come back in a moment. He's also NRL commissioner. Every time I talk to him, he's got a new project. We'll talk about a few of those today. Wayne also has a life outside of sport. He's a former high school science teacher. He's a musician and he has a band, which he loves playing in. He's a lifelong learner. He's a fitness enthusiast. I sometimes see him regularly at Balmoral in a lot less clothes than he's wearing today. He's a leadership expert running programs across Asia Pacific. Wayne Pierce, welcome to the podcast. Andrew, or should I call you Maisie? Uh, we'll go nicknames to start with. So okay, Junior Maisie. and Maisie is fine today. Fantastic. Thanks, mate. So Junior, a rough frame for today because we could chat for hours and we'll, we'll put four frameworks together. Number one, I do want to dig into more about your upbringing and especially the notion I've heard you talk about positive role models. Two is around leadership, what you learned from rugby league, but you've adapted that to the corporate world as well. You're working with lots of different people across Asia Pacific. So I really want to drill into that. Number three, this is a really pertinent topic right now, burnout. Uh, we, we hear a lot about burnout with CEOs, executives, coaches, but every day-to-day -day people are suffering from burnout. So I want to get your thoughts on that as well. And then we're going to do Performance Uncovered, 13 questions to find out more about you, your quirks, your idiosyncrasies, and what makes you tick. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Let's get going. Now, I was in the gym this morning at our local Fitness First, and I was with a mate of mine, Holt, who I used to run with, and it was Holt's first time back in the gym, and I don't know, you're probably thinking, where am I going with this story? And I said, so Holt, what, what do you want to look like? And he looked over, and he said, 
that guy, I want to have arms like him. <laughs> it was you. We ran into you. So it was just so fortuitous that we were in the gym this morning and you ran into us and Holt said, yeah, I want arms like him. Yeah. So you must be in your 40s now. I'm trying to do the math. I wish, yeah, sure, mate. Yeah, I wish I was. But yeah, I'm, for me, it, people say, well, you know, what's it like to exercise and to, to, uh, to do what you do, you know? And I say, well, it's like asking a fish, what's water like? You don't know any different. Because I got into the exercise kick or exercise routine, you know, in my early teens, around 14, 15, I started really getting into it. And since then, it's become part of what I do. And, and you know, the diet and the exercise and, and the meditation, you know, all that sort of stuff really, for me, it's a way of life. And uh, it's, it's really helped me in so many ways. It was just hilarious. I'm in the gym and he did. He said, I want to have arms like him. I like, oh, I'm talking to him later today. I think, I think you might be telling a, sto- a story no, there. Not at all. Uh, so you're, you're doing well. And I, I did say that in the introduction. I first saw you speak many, many years ago. I was in year 10. I had hair back then. Uh, you, you wouldn't remember me because you spoke to hundreds of kids. But it's interesting the impact you had on me all those years ago. I was very fortunate to have had the opportunity to go full-time into schools um, dur- during my – was back end of my playing career. And I went to about 500 schools in over a three-year period where some of those were in the country. I'd, I'd fly up to Dubbo and I'd do um, you know, three or four schools over a couple of days and then come back to Sydney. And for me, it was – at the time, I really enjoyed it. But now it's quite profound the number of people that come up to me. I just had someone just the other day who had represented – um, at the Olympics in judo, and um, she said that I went to her, her school and and spoke about being a non-drinker. She was a non-drinker, and she credited a lot of her success to the fact that she stayed focused and um, was able to say no when all their, all her mates were out partying, drinking. And I think for you coming to country New South Wales and saying that. That was bold for you, like to stand up there. It was like very, very good message for young men. But I think a lot of guys then went, oh, so you know, Wayne Pearce plays for Balmain, <laughs> plays for New South Wales, plays for Australia. Ah, oh, some different role modelling. Because I think a lot of young men and young women see the only way to have fun and celebrate is through alcohol. Yeah. So that's something you've carried it your whole life. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, or it is, I should say. I mean, it originated out of some pain that was associated with alcohol when I was young because uh, my father was an alcoholic. He drank way too much. When he was sober, he was compassionate and friendly and loving and stuff like that. But when he got drunk quite often, actually, he'd come home and was my memories, because he died when I was 14, my memories of him was that he was aggressive and uh, there was yeah, things that I, I rather would have not have experienced that that I attributed to him being drunk. So I saw alcohol as, as not being uh, uh, something that I wanted to do because I thought it changed him for the worse. And so I just never started. And because I never started, it was it was uh, easy for me to, to not drink la- later on in life. Although having said that, when I came into playing first grade, there was a lot of pressure then, peer pressure for me to, to do what the boys do to bond, and that is to get it, go to the pub after training and drink and stuff like that. So it was tough the first few months that I came into the professional level, or semi-professional it was called back then, but I stood my ground and then the guys realised, uh, hang on a sec, he can drive us home. So they actually encouraged me not to drink because <laughs> I was the only one not drinking. <laughs> okay, let's keep him and let's get a Mitsubishi L300. Exactly. Give him the keys. <laughs> He's like, so I had to get a minibus licence then. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear the... The pain and the emotion in your voice when you say that. So your father passing away at 14, that's a big thing. Yeah. Big thing. And having to process that at a young age, 
it's huge, right? Had to to you would have grown up really quick. You would have grown yeah, up oh, really yeah. fast. Yeah, so every one of us, I think, we're track. We're, we're heading down a path, and there's so many different turns and offshoots that we can take at some particular point. But this was a yeah, this was definitely a, a, a T junction in the road. Was I going to go left or right when my father died for a short period of time, where I just couldn't deal with it and uh, was aggressive and doing a whole lot of stuff. And and uh, fortunately for me, I had a mentor, an older friend of my dad's, who took me under his wing and and. My mum I was frustrated with and she was trying to do her best, but I really took notice uh, of this this gentleman. He gave me the, the, the encouragement and, and the, the guidance to, and, and got me to set goals. You know, that was the mm. big thing. It was about setting goals and he gave me the belief in myself uh, or inspired the belief in myself that I could do things. And when I started to achieve stuff because I'd set goals, which I'd never done before, then I started to have more belief and belief – you know, it's the tonic for all of us. If you mm. believe you can, you're halfway there. Fountain of youth, longevity. How long do you want to pencil in? Like I personally want to live to 100 plus and I've openly said on this podcast, I'd love to go to 130 with, but 130 healthy years. So with uh, NMN and resveratrol and exercise and not <laughs> drinking and all that stuff, have you got an age you'd like to get to? This is not a question that you normally get asked in a podcast, is it? No, it's not. But having said that, I mean, I, I, I honestly don't have any ambitions of how old I want to live to, but I have a lot of ambitions what I want to achieve whilst I'm here. To that point, I read a great book uh, just recently called The World is Faster Than You Think, and I could strongly recommend it. It talks about and looks at all the changes that are actually happening in the world and that have happened. And for example, Uber at the moment are researching flying cars, and they reckon that they'll have in America Uber transport by the by 2027. Anyhow, yeah. there's a whole lot of stuff going on in this space of longevity and 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 biomedicine and except all that sort of stuff. So lifespan is going to be, I think, a lot longer than a lot of people. Give me a think. number. A number for what? I'll ask you another another way <laughs> on how long you want to go for. Oh, in, yeah. In- I mean, I, I mean, I'd like to to go. Yeah, certainly 100 is is for me. That's that's not even something you could I would consider kicking a bucket before then. Good. Uh, but yeah, you know, how far beyond that? It doesn't matter as long as as, pro, as long as I'm productive and yeah. I'm contributing. I mean that that's what I for me that's what and I think for you and that's why we're doing this podcast because it's about making a contribution and helping others. Absolutely, and I want to be in the gym in twenty years' time with another young bloke <laughs> saying, "I want arms like him." Okay, <laughs> <laughs> you're blushing. Yeah. Yeah, I, am. I am actually. Yeah. <laughs> another area, Wayne, where you are really well known for is your no bullshit or your no BS approach to leadership. Is that something you learnt through your sporting days as a player? Did you have coaches that influenced you or is that something you've really picked up in the corporate world? Because you've got a business, Wayne Pierce Advantage, and you do a lot of teaching uh, with teachers, with leaders, with coaches. Where where did that no BS approach come from? When I look back, I significantly shifted when my father died when I was 14. So I'm the eldest of three kids. When he died, I went off the rails for for a little bit and then got back on track. Ever since that point, I've sort of been – captain of footy teams at juniors and senior level. I was my high school captain. Uh, there's just a sort of a leadership, an ownership of my, my own behaviour that lends itself to, to leadership. As I got older again, I actually uh, went into the space of actually studying it and that study that I did helped me go to another level. Well, it did because I've done your leadership course, PCM, Process, <laughs> yeah. Process Communication, Communication model. model. Yeah. And I sat there for three days 
And I was actually surprised with a few things. I was surprised first, you didn't talk about footy much. And a lot of times the ex-netballer, the ex-golfer, the swimmer, the track and field, when I was. And in fact, I said to you during the break, I think on day two, if you've got any footy stories. <laughs> <laughs> but credit to you, you have really gone into the science of leadership. Because, you know, you know a lot of ex-footballers, even good salespeople are suddenly jettisoned up to become a leader. And they can be terrible leaders. Because they were really good at the craft, it doesn't mean that they're good at leading men and women. So you you dug deep, right? And you looked at the science, building that with the art. So out of that, you've got a really nice, I wouldn't even call it a philosophy. It's a model. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, great leadership starts with self-leadership. We don't get taught at school. We don't get taught even at university. We don't get taught how to manage our mental state. We don't understand mindset. We understand mindset's important, but we don't understand how to deal with us when, when that doesn't when it goes astray. Mm. And so many uh, you talk you make a very good point. So many people who are in leadership roles, they actually graduate into a leadership role. Most people graduate in a leadership role because they're they're a, 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 a yeah, they're, they're the hardest worker. They, they, they're good with relationships, so they're up, good up with managing. Um, maybe they they bought a business and that business grew, so they become the boss of that business. Um, all of these reasons that people graduate into leadership roles are based on skills that they developed that lend itself to a management type of leader. So, so managing people, okay, into the detail. Mm. But leadership per se is much more uh, about the big picture and about people and, and, and guiding people, inspiring people, coaching people than the technical side of the managing. And, and if you're going to be successful at running a business, then you've got to, you've got to ba- balance the management stuff, which is important. You've got to go into that stuff when there's a crisis because you've got to get back into the weeds. Uh, but business as usual is the leadership stuff. And unless you really work on that, it's not going to just happen. So people can get stuck and default back to managing their people and that tends to choke the people and doesn't allow the people to grow. And also it sucks you down into a space where you're high stress and you're trying to do everything because you haven't developed and grown your people. Um, why haven't you done that? You haven't done that because you don't understand the skills that it requires to get there or the mindset that it's required. So I've put a lot of time and effort into understanding this over the years and, and uh, it's something that, yeah, I think a lot of people can benefit from. Mm. Did you have a leader that comes to mind or a couple of leaders that really influenced you or is it just that broad experience from footy and coaching and being <laughs> in a team? We're going to talk about your band as well. Yeah, yeah. But it's it, was it one or two people? Was it the conglomeration yeah, of lots no, of there's, there's been just a whole lot of people have impacted me positively over the years. A lot of people say, you know, I want to be like that. I want to be a leader like that person. We, you ain't going to be a leader like that person because you're a unique person with the with a. He hasn't got the same fingerprints as you, or she hasn't got the same fingerprints as you. So it's a different person. So yeah, you can take some qualities. I admire those qualities. Can I blend that into who I am? But you've got to be your own person. You know, for me, that's what I've. I'm constantly looking, still learning. I mean, for me, you know, learn, unlearn, relearn is my mantra. You know, this 21st century world where it's just changing at a rapid rate. We've got to we've got to learn, we've got to unlearn, and we've got to relearn. We just done a video on that last week. Yeah, on the Buddhist philosophy Shoshin. 
which right. is to learn, yeah. unlearn, yeah. learn again. Love it. Because yeah. what happens, Wayne, is so many people go, oh, you know, I'm you know, you know, 45. I think I'm my mess. I'm 45. <laughs> <laughs> Maths maybe wasn't my strong point. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm this old and this is how we do it around here. Yeah. But I love that you've taken what you've done, but then you pull it apart. How do we relearn and then go again? It's yeah. so important. Well, the only way I was competitive as a footballer was to, to actually – I wasn't as big as other guys – I had a bit of speed, but I wasn't the quickest guy on the team. Uh, I certainly was as skillful with my hands. The only way I could be competitive was to stay ahead of the curve in terms of preparation. So mm. back in the early 80s, I started playing first grade in 1980, uh, and leading up to that and in the, in, in, when I was playing footy, I was constantly looking at how I could get an edge on others. So it was looking beyond what is to what can be. And that learn, unlearn, relearn mantra was something that, that's always been part of who I am. In fact, for me, it's just part of how we can stay contemporary and continue to add value to ourselves. Mm. And one thing that I've had to do as a business owner, and I'm sure so many people listening to this have had to do to stay contemporary, is having tough conversations. Yeah. Do you have a framework for that? Because it, it can be really, really stressful for a lot of yeah. people. And if you don't have the tough conversation, it then blows up and escalates. So well, you can't someone- be a leader. If you, if, if you don't have a, aren't able to have a tough conversation, it's difficult to be a leader. Okay. Now, there's a huge chunk of the population, a huge chunk of the population, who don't feel comfortable with that because that's the way they're wired. But you can still have the conversation. It'll still feel a little uncomfortable, but you can have it in a safe way by starting with transparency. You start open. You've got to actually be open about why you're actually having this conversation. So, you know, Andrew, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable about having this conversation, you know, because of blah, blah, blah. But what I want to achieve, you let them know what the objective is, and then let's talk about that. Okay, and then deal with the facts and not deal with the uh, not get captured by judgments and opinions. So, I mean, that's a, a simple framework, but uh, a little bit more detail to that. But it's it's something that leaders really need to understand and practice because mm. it, it, if you don't engage in the difficult conversation, maybe it's performance management conversations, you push, you're kicking the can down the road, and at some point you've got to deal with it. Mm. And in the meantime, there's a whole lot of other baggage is going to be accrued around that or maybe caused because of that. Well, some of the difficult conversations that business owners have had is with staff. And yeah. I had this yeah. as well. It was, it was yeah. challenging to yeah. say to staff, look, we've got to go into JobKeeper and cut your hours back. Yeah. And the reason we're doing this is because we want the business to be sustainable. Yep. And I know if I don't do that, we may not all have jobs. So I think yeah. it's really important that framework you've spoken about for anyone going into a tough conversation to breathe, first of all. And I learned this in sport. Yeah. And I think uh, it can, we can go, oh, sport, this is what we learn, we apply it to business. It doesn't always apply. But one of the things that I really think does, when you're in a sporting team, you have those tough conversations because you're on the road together, men and women, mm-hmm. sometimes for months, yeah. and it festers. So you but get taught you are, quick. You're exactly right. But what you do do when you're, you're a professional sporting team, you actually debrief after every game. And every game... The debrief after every game includes what you did well, but actually what didn't work. And they're uncomfortable conversations that the coaching staff will have with you, but other players need to have with each other. Mm-hmm. And and that's when a high-performance environment really does come to the fore. And that's, I think, what a lot of lessons that businesses, small businesses or big businesses can, can take from professional sport is that, you know, if you cr- create an environment of high trust, 
yeah, uh, an environment of accountability and clear expectations, you can have those conversations. Mm. Do you still do that debrief now for you in business? Do you deliver a workshop? If you do media work, Project Apollo, do you sit back and go, right, what have I done well? But what can I improve? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll do a deep, full debrief on the season as soon as our, the origin's over. We'll go through and look at, at, at all aspects of on-field play, off-field play, what could we have done better with Apollo, what worked well also. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's part of any high-performance organisation. So, mm. I mean, it'd be ironic if the players are doing it on the field and we're not doing it off the field. Yeah. You know, that'd be... Uh, not ironic, it'd be a satirical, really. I think I knew the answer. I would have fallen <laughs> off my chair if you'd no, Andrew, I stopped doing that, mate. Just learn, don't ring me up anymore. That's right. Hey, it's me. Just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know you probably hear this on so many other podcasts and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favourite podcast platform and subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. Now let's get back to this week's episode. Now, Junior, part of researching for a podcast involves finding out more about the guest you're talking to. And you can do that a number of ways. You can look at the internet, you can read books, you can listen to other podcasts that they've been on, or you can talk to people they know. Someone who is a mutual friend of both of yours and mine is his nickname is Buckets, Mark O'Neill. And I believe you were Mark's coach back in the Tigers a number of years ago. And when I asked Mark, what do you say or what do you think about Wayne Pearce? He said, well, Maisie, there's a few things I think, but I can't tell you all of those on air. But mate, more what he did say is what I can tell you. Wayne is a team guy. He always puts those around him first. He always has a team first mentality. And that is something that Mark said he picked up from you way, way, way back as an emerging player in the NRL. Now, when I say that, when you hear those words from Mark, what, what do you think? Oh, it's very humbling, very humbling indeed. I mean, but what he's talking about is the context of having a common purpose. When you have a common purpose and everybody's committed to that common purpose, it's easy to actually make sacrifices for each other when you know each other's committed to that common goal. And, you know, I was fortunate that I played and coached in organisations, and particularly at the Tigers, there was a great vibe there where there was a whole lot of teams, there was a real spirit and uh, there was a purpose. And and for me, it's just just a, a, a great experience and it's very humbling for to hear Mark say something like that. Yeah. One of the things that business really struggles with is the concept of teamwork. They don't understand and don't have framework a framework for that. Uh, in professional sports, in special operations in the Army where you see great teamwork, there's real clarity around what it takes to, to create high-performance teamwork. But if you would ask the average boss in a business, what are you doing? Is, firstly, is teamwork important for your business? And they're all going to say yes. You say, okay, if it's important for the business, what are you doing to achieve peak performance in your team teams mm. as far as teamwork goes? They won't be able to tell you because most people in business think that driving high-performance teamwork is going out and doing a team building day where you're you're climbing ropes or you're building a raft or you're doing like Have once, we had a, this once, chat, a, like, once uh, a year. Hey, Wayne and Andrew, you've been arguing. <laughs> There's a bit of conflict. Go build a billy cart. Hey, <laughs> together. Now you got to build it together. You got to oh, build together, it together. Yeah, together. Hey, now get on well. Go get stuff, Mister <laughs> Teamwork. Oh man, I've seen some so, shockers over um, years. My point is, yeah, and there's there's a place for having fun. That's morale building. 
but it's not team building. Yeah, team building is it, and team development, as I call it, is really about understanding the fundamentals that you need to work on. As, and which which I mentioned, you you you've got a clarity of purpose. You've got to uh, create an environment where trust is front and center, and uh, and get people to model those behaviors. You've got to have clear expectations on where you're going, how you're going to get there. You've got to understand how to keep yourself accountable and also have the conversation with others to keep them accountable. And you've got to understand how you can energise each other hmm. and so that you're celebrating your achievements and you're acknowledging the effort that people's put in, putting in on a daily basis. Why do you think sports teams go out of their way to high-five each other to, or to, to actually celebrate all the little things during games? It's because it energises them. Hmm. And that energy is a huge part of what it takes to be a high-performing team, mm. as you know. There are two questions to pick up on what you've just spoken about. One's easy and the other one's curly. Which yeah. one do you want first? The tough one? You always or? start with the early, easy one, don't okay. you? Come on. What yeah. do you do for fun? My fun is, uh, well, I, I enjoy the, the, the kayaking, the, the ski on the, on the harbour. I love doing that. And I just love researching. I love studying and I just love putting together the pieces of the puzzle that, that allow me to go down more and more rabbit holes to actually understand more about people, mm. about performance and about essentially about what you know, what makes the world tick. So I, I love all that sort of stuff. Uh, my wife thinks uh, I'm a bit geeky, but she's um, – She's, I've been with her for a long, long time Nerds now. Nerds rule the world. They, all the billionaires, they're all yeah, nerds, right? Yeah, Nothing I'm wrong a, with being a nerd. I'm a bit of a nerd, but I, but I like to have a bit of fun. Why does she well. think you're geeky? No, I'm, I'm just joking when I say that. But um, no, she, she knows how passionate I am about this cause of, of wanting to understand what makes people tick and, and to help people, really. Mm, it was that appreciative inquiry, isn't it, that we often have yeah, as a young absolutely, kid? Yeah, absolutely. Like, why, why? And you, you haven't stopped asking yeah. that. Uh, on the fun theme, the big hitters, when are they coming back? Where are they playing? Uh, How do we yeah, book tickets? Actually, yeah, that's, that's the other fun thing. I forgot to mention that. Yeah, so I've got a, 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 we've got a cover band. Now, the big hitters, um, well, we've wound up big hitters because we've expanded oh. into Aussie icons. Right. Now We're now Aussie icons and, and – uh, uh, I play alongside of uh, Mike Whitney as well. He, Mike Whitney's in the band, former international cricketer for <laughs> I Australia. I can't imagine the energy with you and Whit up front And stage. Eric Growth. Okay. Eric Growth's in the band as Junior well. Junior so. or senior? No, no, senior. Senior. Yeah, so um, he's in the band with us. And we've got some really good musos uh, as well. Uh, and yeah, That's a lot of energy up on – yeah, no, how do you work out who's going lead? Do you do like paper, scissors, <laughs> rock? Because Michael Whitney, he loves a crowd, doesn't well, he? We, 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 yeah, he's the promoter, as we talk about in PCM terms. He's, he's, he, he loves to be front and centre. But, it, but you know, it's, it, we – we bounce off each other pretty well, and um, must be fun. Just getting and out there. It's all of fun. We just do the we do cover songs and and uh, have a bit of a dance and have, have fun. It's, that's definitely an outlet. Okay, tougher question. Let's see if you dance on this. Okay, one as well. this is a tough one. Right, female bank leader rings you up, Wayne. I've done your PCM course. Uh, I know all about the first responder. I know about the stress response. Great course. Learn it. You've got the rigor. I can see you really practice the art and science of leadership. I want you to come and run the business unit or the bank, or the consulting firm, or insert company here. How do you do that? How would you set up an operating rhythm inside a business? So first, I need to get a brief on on uh, where the challenges are, the touch points are, because touch points are really important. What expertise do we have internally? Where are the gaps? And then it's really about getting the people to understand each other. So you're going you're gonna to bring some new temp team members in. Invariably, you probably would. First and foremost, you've got to get people to take their masks off and connect as people, okay? Because too often, too many people, particularly in the industry you're talking about, 
they take the masks, wear the mask to work every, every, every day because they feel there's an image to uphold. Well, one of the reasons you have great, so, such great teamwork in professional sport and also in special ops in the army, two disciplines that you see great teamwork is because you know what? There's no one wears a mask. Yeah. You know what this person's all about. You know what makes them tick and you respect that diversity. You're different to me, okay? But in too many industries, commercial industries, there's this facade and people aren't prepared to go past that, particularly leaders, you know, because I had – but be yourself. Authenticity, it can't be achieved if you don't take that mask off. So I'd be encouraging that first and foremost as a, as a basis for then having the conversation because you can't have the open conversations and you can't be transparent if you don't get that out the way first first mm. up. And then obviously you work in, into – what what are the issues that are holding us back? That why have you got me in here? And then go beyond that. But you've got to start with taking the mask off, mm. and it's something that often gets overlooked. Because what do people go to? They go to okay, let's set our goals. Well, hang on a sec. We've got to actually start to understand each other. On the first meeting that I had with Project Apollo, what I did was I got everybody in the room and I went around the room and I spent a couple of minutes talking about why this particular person is brought onto the team and why they're going to be of value to us going forward. And that sort of set, set the scene and then we worked then a lot more closely because we actually under, understood and respected each other mm. a lot more. I'm curious if some people, and, and it's getting better, like there's a lot more discussion around vulnerability. There's a lot more discussion around authenticity. In some cultures. Okay. Because right, eh? I, I, you know, I work across a whole lot of business, I can tell you, here and, and over in Asia. And yeah, some cultures there are, but the vast majority still get stuck because there's, there's a fear, a fear that I'm gonna, uh, maybe I'm going to get found out, a fear maybe that they don't believe that that's necessary but yeah, in some cultures. So, are we ticking the box almost on? Because you're you're passionate about this. So, do you think oh. we go? Oh, let's be vulnerable. Let's let's be authentic. Done. Move on. Yeah. Like I mean, for example, you know, if you really want to know what makes people tick, what I do in in, in the seminars I run is I get people to pair up, okay, and I give them a topic, and topic might be, what's the most courageous thing you've ever done, okay? This is after a few warm up topics, like mm. yeah, and then you you so if you're sharing with me what's the most courageous thing you've ever done. No one's telling you to actually really open your heart up, but if you're honest with yourself, you will dig deep and you will and share. And so many people uh, come out of those conversations and say, "Wow, I didn't, didn't ever ever th- thought I would share such and such with someone that I don't know that well." Mm. And, and they feel so much more connected when they have those sort of conversations. And connectivity is really the key. It's it's that emotional connection that people have that is the key to great teamwork. I love seeing your passion on that because a lot of people go, yeah, yeah, there's more vulnerability, more... No, no, no it's not just ticking the box. No. Do you think your background that you got to know yourself much better at a young age because of hardship? Going to Balmain as a young kid, really, in your teenage years, you had some big, strong blokes around you to say, no, I'm not going to drink alcohol. So you've obviously had a very clear purpose or Simon Sinek goes, why? You're North Star. I, I can't help but think a lot of people, and I know because you know, we coach in similar industries, yeah. and you ask someone, what's your purpose? Something, 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 blah, 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 customers don't, don't Australians go, no, 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 <laughs> that's your companies. What's yours? Yeah. And some people just go, I've got no idea. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel for people when 
And there's so many people out there that don't really connect to who they are. Uh, well, they don't really connect who, who they are to really what they feel great doing to where they want to get to that's going to help them get to feel aligned. And that alignment is something that I've stumbled over. It's just happened. I really haven't stumbled over, but I've, I've just been listening to what it is that I, I'm satisfied by. And there'd been, there's been a couple of really big turning points in my life. One was the end of my footy career when – I finished my footy career and I, uh, at, at the age of 30 because my knees wore out and, and I pretty much just uh, packed in 11 years of, of the, at, at the top level, first graded, and playing in the national football, that sort of stuff. But that's pretty young in today's terms, isn't now, it? Now 30? it is. Back then it was, was because you had to work a job back then and you're pl- training and it was, it was pretty demanding. At age 30, I finished playing and then what do I do? I, well, I'm, I'm sort of selling some advertising as a gig. I'm, I'm doing a bit of media and uh, that was it. When I was playing, I was actually fully aligned, and then it come to the end of the end of the cliff. Mm-hmm. So I was I was just going through the motions for three years, and then I got an opportunity to coach. Yep, and then coaching. What happened was I'm back in the sink, and I coached for seven years. And then what happened was that the last year that I coached, about halfway through, sorry, I coached for six years, and then that was the Balmain Tigers, and then Balmain and West joined together, and I was given the gig uh, of coaching the West Tigers. I was, I was given a three-year contract, but I walked away at the end of one year. And the reason I walked away was we started the year really well, uh, but I was working really long hours. I was getting home, leaving home at 6.30 in the morning, getting home at you know quarter past eight at night. I had three young kids. My wife was doing doing a, a really good job looking after the kids, but you know, for me, I wasn't there for them. Anyhow, it was in late July of that year. I got up early in the morning, headed off and I got halfway to the office, which was a Burwood in those days, and uh, the, my phone rang, and it was my youngest daughter on the phone. She's crying on the phone. Mummy just told me you're not going to my zone running carnival this year. And and the backstory to that is I couldn't make it. To, I couldn't make it to a school carnival because I had something more important, which was the footy stuff. Mm-hmm. And I said, if you make the zone carnival, I'll come along to it. But something more important came up with the footy stuff again. I couldn't make the zone carnival. So and I said, oh, I can't make it, and and, and I said, this is going, but but get mummy to put you on afterwards and tell me all about it. I want you to be there, anyhow. So pull over. I pulled friends. over into a garage at Ride and sat there for about fifteen minutes after the phone call because my head was spinning. I'm thinking, what sort of what sort of a father am I? What sort of a person am I? So what happened was I made the decision in the car then and there that I was going to quit at the end of the year. Another two years on my contract. I didn't tell anybody until the end of the season. I told my wife when I got home and she didn't believe me. Uh, but at the end of the season, I went and saw the chairman uh, and told him that, no, I, I can't do this any longer. It's, it's causing problems with me and in terms of the way I feel about the family and I'm letting them down, blah, 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 blah. Anyhow, come on, story story, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for my daughter to, for, that, for mm. that phone call because I actually quit coaching, uh, footy coaching, and I moved in this direction that I've been doing for 20 years now, which is working with corporate. So I took that the lessons learned from footy and my life into the business world and uh, it's been fantastic. I love it. Don't think there'd be many coaches who've gone to the chairman and said, hey, I'm out. It's normally <laughs> the other way around. You know, we're having a look at the results sheet, Junior, and there's more L's than W's. Uh, mate, thank you. Uh, yeah, no. Clear your locker out and get out of here. Go spend some time with your kids. Go to the zone carnival. Exactly. What What did your chairman, what did the players say? Were they surprised? Yeah, yeah. So they, they, they were surprised, yeah. I mean, it, we were a tight club. And, and bear in mind, this is the so this is the first year the West Tigers 
it was a tough year to coach because because there were two clubs come together. Had to sack half the players, half the coaches. Had to sort of work with two boards that really didn't want to join together. Mm. Yeah, that that was layered on top of the hours that I was working and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it was pretty tough. And and the players, I think they understood the workload that that I was under, and I gave told them why I wasn't coaching. But then the media comes up with, as the media do, there's got to be some conspiracy. There's The players, I think, have revolted against him and that's what's happened. So the story came out that the players revolted against me and all that sort of stuff, which is absolutely You rubbish. can't have a rugby league coach or a coach of any sort of professional football who <laughs> makes the decision based on values and connection and family. Oh, this is not done. Let's make something up. Hey, so to close out, the female leaders rung you up. You've given a great overview of getting the guard down, you know, no yeah, BS yeah. and everything, yeah. get in there, connect, and then they offer you the role. Big role, meaty role, good job. You can turn a culture around, a big company. Uh, what do you say? Are you, are you asking if I would do the yeah, role Yeah, would now? you do it? Would you go no, and no, work no, in a big no. corporate? I, I, for me, I, I actually enjoy the, the flexibility of working with different people, different cultures, different teams. And for me, th- that variety is something that's really satisfying, really stimulating. I, I have had offers to go into companies, yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, That's why I yeah. asked. Yeah, I have had office. But for me, I actually enjoy the flexibility of, of, of spreading myself around. Okay, so you have an offer. You say no. They ring back. And have you learned anything today, Wayne? It's Carol. I'm going to add another zero. Yeah. yeah no, which- no. I, I just think for me, I, I think I can add more value to more people by just sharing the models that I have around performance in business, around teamwork and leadership. Mm. So for me, yeah, no, I wouldn't wouldn't do that. Okay, so let's go from big kids to little kids because I know something you're really passionate about and your wife is passionate about as well is educating kids, especially those kids that don't have it as easy as other kids. So I'd love you to, to share what you're now doing in this space, educating. Yeah, so you know, one of the problems for our education system, and not just in the behavioural space, it's basically in, in, just in general, general schooling space, is that teachers aren't taught how to deal with different types of kids. We've got different personalities. In every school, there's a whole range of different personalities. And, the, and not all kids are going to sit there at a desk and write down and listen to what the teacher says in in a way that's very regimented and structured. Mm-hmm. That there's a, there's a small percentage of kids will do that, but a large percentage of kids want a little bit more interaction. They want movement. They want playfulness. That that sort of stuff. So teachers aren't taught this stuff. Teachers aren't taught communication, communication channels. So what I'm passionate about is is to work with schools and teachers to actually help them understand how they can best, particularly public education. I'm passionate about public education. I'm a publicly educated kid. And for me, the system has an obligation to future generations to educate teachers in a way that they are going to be better prepared to deal with all different types of kids. A mission for me is to actually somehow get the authorities and powers that be to actually get their head around this because there's a whole lot of focus, and I read this in the papers constantly, about performance in schools in Australia dropping down. And and it's, it's all about the focus tends to be on what the curriculum is. But the issue is not the curriculum. The issue is engagement of the students. Yeah. So if you engage the students and you engage them through the way they want to learn, okay, then that's how we're going to get – and that's which just has to be – tailored, that's how we're going to get better results. But, but we're giving kids ribbons for coming 10th and participation awards, come on, that's got to be creating a lot more improvement, isn't it? I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm putting the fishing rod out there. No, no, you're exactly right. I mean, the thing is there's a focus on on uh, we've got to make the kids feel better. 
hang on a sec, the world ain't like that. The real world is not like that out there. The real world is competition. So let's not shy away from competition. In preschool, you can actually do that. But when they get into primary school, high school, let's look at how we can get them more resilient so they can actually understand that having setbacks and failure is actually on the path to being successful. Because I've never ever coached a player as a football coach in a new skill and that's, that player has got it first go. They've made mistakes on the way to trying to perfect it. And then when they perfected it, yeah, where well, they look back and go, wow, geez, I made a lot of mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes. I'm sure you made a lot of mistakes in the course of your... Still making them. And exactly. It's the biggest lessons. Yes. And you know, I've spoken to you. One of the big things for me, I carried this... I was just sort of a, a facade might be a too strong a word, but I definitely had the walls up as the performance guy. You know, yeah. I'd done well at sport. I'd done well in business. I'd done well in relationships. Worked with national sporting teams. Yeah. <laughs> had yeah. a marriage breakdown. And... First of all, I didn't want to tell people about it because I, I'd think you would think I was a failure. Mm. And secondly, it was just the embarrassment that, you know, the performance guy couldn't keep his relationship yeah, together. That's right. Once I realized that sharing that, first of all, getting some work and some support, a wonderful psychologist putting a team together to get over my own thoughts. And then when I shared that with others, you connect so much more. But what it gave me is a resilience and a grit. So you know, look at your story from 14 years of age. With your dad to you know setbacks in football and injuries and then you know retiring retiring yeah. at thirty from playing and then coaching yeah. and then leaving coaching and mate, that builds that grit as you go through and that's what I do worry with young kids yeah. where we say oh look keep press a button everything goes on you yeah. drop and drag yeah. you all have done really well no feedback we see it then they get into the business world and they get told that report's rubbish the report is rubbish it, it could be perhaps coached in a different way yeah but then that kid often crumbles because yeah, sure. they, there's no resilience yeah yeah absolutely and and the ability to bounce back from setbacks is one of the key attributes of anyone that's been successful mm. you're never going to be successful if you don't learn how to suck it up and bounce back and have another crack you know, everybody in life, one thing that's going to be certain, sure as the sun's going to come up tomorrow, is that you're going to get knocked down in this lifetime. Many, many, many times. And you get two choices. Mm. You give up or you get up. If you get up, that's the only option if you're going to keep going on. So you really need to learn how that, how to develop a mindset that's going to allow you to believe that you can get up. And it's very much aligned to, to op, being optimistic and believing that there is a way out. Mm, love it. So I'm holding up the rearview mirror in your tender years so far, and I don't even think you're halfway. <laughs> <laughs> when you look in the rearview mirror, what are you proudest of? What am I proudest of? Yeah. That's a difficult one. I suppose, I suppose it's the ability, what we're just talking about, the ability to bounce back from setbacks. For me, nothing's insurmountable. I've had some pretty big setbacks. As I said, early on, it was when my dad died I, when, I, when I started playing. Then I got ADN, I got a, a hepatitis B, which back in those days, there was no vaccine for that. So I was out for six months, missed a whole footy season, uh, detached a retina in my eye when I was 21, missed a whole season there. I got uh, multiple other injuries and bits and pieces. I mean, it, it, but for me, it, I've just been fortunate that I've developed a quality that, I, you know, if I don't get knocked down, I'm, I'm not pushing the boundaries. That's yeah. pretty much it. I saw you in the gym this morning. I'm not going to knock you down. <laughs> 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 I might wait another 20 years. <laughs> Crystal ball. So now we're going from the rearview mirror oh, moving wow. forward yeah. on two levels. Yeah. 
what is your business doing in a few years' time? So what's Wayne Pierce Advantage? What does the business look like? How have you adapted? Like, is it a different teaching model? Is it using technology? What does it look like? Yeah, so I've got, I've actually got two businesses. One is uh, um, Wayne Pierce Advantage, which is me consoling with businesses. And, and my vision in, in that space is actually to really lead businesses into a space where they absolutely do understand the productivity gains that can come with with driving high-performance teamwork and understanding the, the science of high-performance teamwork. The other business is called Wayne Pierce Academy, and that's that's uh, really working with schools. And the vision there is, uh, as I mentioned, to, to educate teachers as to how they can better engage with students to the point where the whole system starts to go up a gear or two, uh, or to maximum speed, I should say, in terms of performance, because students are fully engaged mm. across the board. So for me, that's that's what I'm looking for. And personally, I'm, I'm interested in this answer. Uh, what, what else do you want to do? For me, uh, that's, I mean... I'm not somebody who wants to has great ambitions about traveling the world or any of that sort of stuff. I mean, for me, it's it's I would like to do to do a lot more work with children in and and um, young adults in that poverty space because there's so many people that are that are talented that don't have opportunities and because they don't have opportunities early on, they lack belief, but they've got an incredible talent. Yeah, as in physical talent sport-wise or intellectual talent uh, that's not being harvested. So, for example, yeah, you might have a kid living uh, at, in, a, in, a, in a, a suburb that's, that's a peripheral suburb out of Sydney and and there's a facility that, it, that if he could get to that facility and train could maybe make an Olympic side because he's just got all this ability but can't get from there to there because the parents are working long hours, they're on low incomes, that sort of stuff. So, And, and so what happens is... The belief's not there because this student's, you know, or this child's not getting the opportunity, so they the, don't get the belief early on, so therefore they're not capitalising on the talent that they have. I haven't had a role model like you had at that young age to teach you about goal setting and put you on a different path. That's right, yeah. So, you know, I think for me, I'd love to, in some way, shape or form, create some sort of vehicle for, for students to have more mentors, have access to more mentors, to, to have opportunities that they're not getting. And I think that would have a huge impact on via social conscience on the recidivism rate in, in jails, on, on incarceration rates, all that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff we can do. Mm. Deep, very deep. <laughs> it is. Now, I like asking all of our guests, where do you draw inspiration from? Apart from the last hour talking to you, you can see lots of different areas, but is there a book, a poem, a quote, a thing, a movie, a person? <laughs> is there one thing that you just go, bang, that's what I think of if I need to be inspired? Uh, I wish you had asked me before and I could have a think about it, but <laughs> nothing off the top of my head. I mean, I just wake up every day and, and meditate and for me, because I've look after my health and fitness and all that sort of stuff, I just have a lot of energy. So I, I don't really need to reflect on on sort of anything. Mm. I, I think you've got to dial your energy up. It doesn't show much. Like for those watching the video, look at it. I don't know. You shouldn't talk. I'm, I'm just mirroring you. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Burnout Junior. Damien Hardwick, 
has recently left Richmond AFL team, citing burnout as the core cause. In an article last year with Fox Sports, four-time Hawthorne Premiership mentor Alistair Clarkson said he was worried about the toll that coaching is having on AFL figures. One of the most decorated coaches in AFL history, Clarkson's comments came last year after Reese Shaw took indefinite leave from North Melbourne. Now, I don't know whether these are all burnout, but he also mentioned James Hurt, Mark Thompson, Dean Bailey, Phil Walsh, Dean Lagley, Danny Frawley and Don Pike as coaches who have done it tough. What are your thoughts on that specific to to coaching at the high level, first of all, and burnout? Yeah, having coached at that level, I can understand that there's enormous pressure on coaches. And I don't think it's all burnout, though, why they, they finish. I think there's different reasons why players, why coaches, I should say, pull the pin. And burnout's certainly really common. Is it easy to go, though, he's burnt out and we'll just get the headlines, the tabloids? Yeah. He's not coping. Is that, is that a, an easy way out? Yeah, I th- well, it's certainly not coping. But what is burnout versus what are the other causes? Like, for example, burnout, as, as I understand it, and I do a lot with people that are um, struggling in that space and how, how do we help them become more resilient. But the burnout concept is actually really linked to a particular type of person, the type of person that puts pressure on themselves to to demonstrate competency. And there's a lot of those people out there, okay? So each of us has different internal drivers or triggers or questions that we're constantly asking ourselves. And those of us that are driven by wanting to demonstrate competency, am I competent? I'm seeking results, I'm seeking achievement, I'm seeking progress. And if that's not forthcoming, I will actually revert to overworking, overthinking, overcomplicating, because more, if I do more, then you're going to demonstrate my, you're going to understand that I'm I'm competent. And that doing more, getting sucked into that vortex of doing more is the space that genuine burnout as we know it occurs. But then there's a, another bu- big bunch of people that actually will maybe use the term burnout, but it's not necessarily cause because they're actually overthinking, overworking, overdoing, it's because they feel that they're not being accepted or liked in that environment because the, they might, they're, they're the type of people that want to be liked and want to be loved, but they're getting hammered in the media. They're not feeling as that, that compassion or that warmth. And that then makes it untenable for them to sort of stay in that environment. Um, it's a different type of trigger. They're the two biggest, as I've observed, the two biggest challenges for coaches and reasons why coaches are getting out of that space. You and I both dance between sport and the corporate world, so you see both sides. I look at a CEO of a top 30 or 40 listed ASX company. I look at some of the founders I work with and some of the heads of government, and I look at head coaches of NRL and AFL. You could not pay me enough money, Wayne Pierce, to do one of those jobs. Would, would you, if, if say Volandis goes, Junior, I've got the next project for you. I've got a 19th franchise. We're going to pay you to go and be head coach. What would you say to him? Uh, well, I've been there, done that. I wouldn't be going back to it. It's not It's not the sort of environment that um, Hang I, on, Wayne, I'm going to give you more money, mate. <laughs> You're going to have a private jet. No, You're going no, to have no. a, a beautiful apartment no. on the I ocean. Mean, it, it, it is provided you surround yourself with the right people, provided that you have the temperament to be able to deal with the different types of players, not get traumatised. Because I, I do think there's a, there is PTSD with a lot of coaches that get out of that space because there's, there's an incredible stress and continual stress that is being experienced by a lot of coaches that is 
probably some of it's brought on by themselves. Their, their, their desire, some of them, de their desire to micromanage and rather than step back, you know. And, and, I, and I've got to take your hat off to Wayne Bennett, you know, as in his style of coaching is very much, I'm looking at the bigger picture, I'm dealing with getting the players' heads in the right space, and I get my assistant coaches to do the other stuff that is the more detailed stuff. And I think that's one of the secrets to why Wayne has been around for so long and been Phenomenal so successful. And you have a look at how they're performing in the NRL in their first year where so many of the experts said they're going to come last. It's just a phenomenal effort. And, and I think it's testimony to the fact that there's a huge difference between leading and managing, yeah? And Wayne is just really anchored in that leadership space and he lets, lets the managing stuff, the detail stuff, be handled by his assistants. Hi, it's Angela Poon. I'm thrilled to share some exciting news about the new venture Andrew and I have been working on together. Over the past five years, we've been managing two separate businesses, andrewmay.com and strivestronger.com, which has led to some confusion in the market. So to streamline our offerings and make it easier for our clients to engage with us, we've taken the best of both worlds through our learnings over the past few years, delivering large scale programs to our corporate clients. And we have created the Performance Intelligence Academy. Based on invaluable feedback from our clients, this new offering provides a much clearer, scalable and more comprehensive solution. Now our approach begins with an assessment of both the physical and psychological energy through our Live Life Score, as well as an evaluation of mental skills to establish a baseline through our Mental Skills Calculator. From there, our performance toolbox serves as a personal coach in your pocket, providing resources and tools to enhance well-being, boost productivity, and develop leadership capacity. In this toolbox, we have engaging micro lessons on influencing, coaching, energy optimization, personal productivity, and mental resilience. Our platform offers access to engaging webinars, community pages for networking, and a wealth of templates and learning resources. In addition to our digital offerings, we also specialize in hosting engaging events, including keynote presentations and workshops featuring a diverse range of presenters to keep participants energized and engaged. If you're looking to elevate the productivity and well-being of your team, we invite you to reach out to us. Whilst our new website will be launching in the coming months, you can inquire for more information through andrewmay.com. Stay tuned for further updates. Exciting things are on the horizon, so watch this space. Clarity around delegation rather than, oh, that's hard, I'll get you to do it. So there's a real clear plan. Hang on, Volandis is back on the line. He wants the answer to the question. <laughs> are you telling him to get stuff? You're not going to go and coach the 19th franchise? No, Peter knows I'm, I'm not interested in, in, in coaching the, the 18th. 18th, oh, the 18th. 19th, yes, yes, 18th, yes. 18th, which we haven't chosen yet or haven't gone down the path of of uh, exploring that option at the moment. But this coaching is an interesting co concept because – in corporate world out there, we, we talk about coaching and you say, well, how much coaching do you do in, in your business? And well, we're a coaching culture, Wayne. We're a coaching culture. We've got culture. a coaching culture inside and our how, business. And how much coaching do you actually do in that coaching culture? Is it is it I did manual performance review. <laughs> annual performance <laughs> review or quarterly review. I, I know then you've you, had similar conversations. Yeah, and, and then yeah, but you look at at, at the, the the truly coaching cultures in the, the high performance disciplines like sport coaching is ongoing daily you know that's that's but that's really the leadership space that the high performance uh, athletes and business athletes is no are no different to 
um, sports athletes. What do you do to switch off physically and psychologically? Just to close out the burnout conversation, because when you look at the research on burnout, there's there's two different parts. There's organisational burnout. I think what's happening to a lot of these AFL coaches, it's not as prevalent in NRL, but I did do a Google search and Jeff Tuvey, I'm sure you've hung out with Tuves over the years. This is back in 2014. Tuvey called for a review into player and coach workload. Personally, he was seeing how demanding it is to be a head coach, managing fatigue and the ability to, to switch off. So yeah, that's been prevalent in, in, in all sporting associations. But what, what do you do physically to switch off and psychologically? Yeah, so... Well, Physically, I paddle. You know, I, I paddle on the harbour. I got a, I got a ski, uh, racing ski that I just uh, get out there in the harbour. And for me, that is physical and, and mental. It allows me to, to to just get into a groove and just switch off. And I, I find it so therapeutic, uh, especially when you see the dolphins and yeah. the odd shark out there. <laughs> what but do you hope the dolphins? <laughs> maybe get a bit stressed. Out. Have you seen the shark out there? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've actually, I've only ever seen two. Um, you clenched, was, don't you? <laughs> a couple of years ago in COVID, I was paddling out. I paddled out from Balmoral, paddling out under the harbour. And, and, and there, the previous week, there was a whole massive big pot of about 30 dolphins. And the next, very next week, I see this fin. And I thought it was a dolphin because they're all there the previous week. But it wasn't doing this. It kept doing this. And it came between myself and, and um, my paddling partner straight between the boat. And it was like a, looked like a big bull shark. There's virtually no one, one once in 50 years, I think someone's been attacked mm. there. And, um, Still, so when, you, when, you, when you see them, like there's a big difference. Like every time you're on the on the water, if, if I'm on a boat, my heart rate goes up. But if you're swimming, I don't know whether I've told you this. I was in Byron Bay a number of years ago training for a big swim and a juvenile white pointer swam underneath me. It was oh, over two wow. metres. So it was longer than me. And I, and I reckon, <laughs> I don't know whether I've manufactured this, but I reckon it looked at me. And just sort of looked and then – because, you know, the juveniles are the ones that attack because the bigger yeah. ones have normally yeah. got stability and they've worked out the food chain. I was so calm in that moment. I, I, I can talk you, know you what? through it You know what? The shark would have been scared looking at you, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> it would have taken off straight away. <laughs> I've got a good head for radio. <laughs> but it was. It was so calm. And I can remember just sort of calmly like slowing down, not yeah. thrashing. Wow. And the backstory, my mate Dave – uh, we'd gone there for to celebrate his Bucks party. He you know, works in high-profile job, didn't want to have a big party that would make the paper. So we went to Byron for a fitness camp. And as we walked in this morning, he, he said to me, what if there's any sharks? I said, just swim faster than your mate. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, really? We're at Wadigo. So I said, mate, we'll be fine. There's no sharks. I, I shouldn't have had the conversation. I shouldn't have been a smart ass. So then after the shark swam off, then I got his attention because he could see me. He said, but, but what's up? What's up? I said, mate, a shark just swam underneath me. He said, no, no, what, what's really up? I said, mate, a two-meter great white just swam underneath me and he bolted. He literally bolted to the shore. In your direction. Yeah, no, no, bolted to the sand. And I got in there. I said, what did, you, what did you swim off for? He said, well, you said if we see a shark, just be faster than your mate. I said, stop you. He didn't get back in the water that trip. No, I can't blame him. That's for sure. I wouldn't be I wouldn't offense. I mean, on a kayak, it's a bit different to being in the water. Yeah, I, I digress talking about sharks. But yes, I much would rather see a dolphin. Which brings us back to the dolphins. Yeah. And Wayne Bennett, which is, that was a circular conversation. Beautiful. Fantastic. Did you see what he did there, Winston? That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. You've done a bit of this before, haven't you? A bit of interviewing, a bit of media. <laughs> so I am keen to find out more about you. We call this the Performance Uncovered. 13 questions to find out about you. When I ask you the question, just give me the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? Do you need a drink? You need to do some push ups? Uh, I'll do my best. I'll do my best. All right. Question number one What is your favorite movie? 
Top Gun Maverick. It's gone to the top of the list after I just saw it recently. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many times have you seen it? Uh, twice. Yeah. He is that, so yeah, good. It, and, and with the, the, the latest um, effects and all that sort of stuff, I, I really like the previous one, but this one, yeah, I think it's even better. Yeah. Awesome. Good call. Question two is a tough one for you because you know so many songs. The question is, what song do you know all the lyrics to? Or I'll reframe, what's one of your favourite songs? One of my favourite entertainers was Bruce Springsteen. 1985, I remember going watching him at the old entertainment centre. Whole concert, I stood up on the on the chair like everybody else was doing there. And uh, Dancing in the Dark, I think it would have to be probably my favourite song. You know what's coming next. You've got a band. Come on, give us, give us a verse. Uh, I get up in the evening and I ain't got nothing to say. I come home in the morning. I go to bed feeling the same way. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. We'll put some backing music to that one, <laughs> Wizard. Uh, what food can't you get enough of? Oh, food. I love fruit. I love fruit. For me, a really a great fruit salad, in-season fruit salad. Love it. Number four, what book has had the biggest impact on your life? I'm reading one recently that well, – sorry, I read one recently by a general who um, was in charge of the US forces over in Iraq. And the books that I like to read are books that that, uh, that I can learn something from and that, that um, can – help businesses as well and this one's called team of teams by general stanley mccrystal and it's just you know an amazing book that i would strongly suggest if anyone's looking at sort of tips on organizational change or, or um team performance i think it's a great book question number five what is your most meaningful possession most meaningful meaningful possession I'd say my, 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 my ski, my ocean ski, I think. It's, it's, Has it gone that far up on the list? It's gone up on the list, yeah, yeah. Before that, it probably would have been my toothbrush. <laughs> you still got good teeth. you got a full set of it. <laughs> it's still there anyway. So um, how many times are you getting out on the ski now? I usually get out three, four times a week uh, as, um, because it, it is so therapeutic and, and, and great fitness as well. I did a swim last week at Balmoral just from one end of the beach to the other. I went there on it was Friday. I had a couple of early meetings. I had a lunch meeting, had a gap in between. It was beautiful. The water at the moment is translucent. I, I could see all the way along Barrel, Balmoral Beach and back at one and a half K. It was stunning. Yeah, the harbour over the last – I think since COVID, the harbour – during COVID and since COVID, the harbour is as cleaner than it's ever been, which let's hope it stays that way. And question number six, what does your weekly fitness routine look like? Uh, usually, it uh, depends because of, as you know, um, being consulting, you, you get sometimes get tied up with work and, and um, travelling and, and stuff like that. But if, if I've got time, I'll, I'll do three or four days on the water with paddling. Uh, I'll do two or three days in the gym, but I, I usually like to have one or two days a week rest. And for me, that's that's a really good balance. But typically, I probably would, would exercise about four days a week. Okay, that's less than I thought. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think for me, I used to do a lot more, but now I've, I've always watched my diet, but now I'm actually more into my diet than I ever had. And um, I actually, probably about 18 months ago, I went gluten-free. And I didn't, I didn't realise the impact gluten had on uh, inflammatory effect on the intestines. Mm. And for me, it's certainly given me even more energy and less 
rumbling in the tummy and stuff like that. Interesting yeah. you say my mother's celiac. My brother's been diagnosed celiac as well. I would say, well, I'm gluten intolerant, but I don't have celiac disease. But if I eat white bread, which I love a fresh loaf of white bread, cut it up, you know, a bit of butter and Vegemite on it, my stomach after that, and yeah. more than my stomach, it makes me fart like a champion. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I eat very little gluten. Yeah. It makes such a difference now. I can tell when food's got gluten in it because yeah. I just crash after. And the great thing is that there's so many um, so many options now and breads uh, that, that are gluten-free. It's fantastic. Mm. So uh, as a segue from that to question number seven, <laughs> what is your favourite failure? Or when you look back, what challenge have you learned the most from? I think the, the, the for me it was being able to accept feedback because – you know, when I first started, and I've got to take my hat off to um, Frank Stanton, who was the coach that really, my footy coach that made it the biggest difference to me. Um, when I he came to the club in my second year in first grade, and I was someone who was pushing back on on feedback at that particular point, as in I felt that I was giving my because I was someone who gave my absolute best. If I cop some, if somebody was giving me corrective feedback, I would push back on it. Were you not used to getting feedback? Yeah, no. Nah. No, that's right. Yeah, no, I wasn't prior to that. And then, because everybody would tell me how good I was going, all this sort of stuff. But then, when he pointed out to me that you know you really got to take this on board because you got an opportunity to go to play representing football. He was the coach at the Tigers at the time, and ultimately later that year, I, I took took his advice on on board, and I've never looked back because now I really do embrace feedback. And I went on to play for Australia and, and do all the other stuff. Understatement. You've built a business on feedback now. You coach people around that, so it's a that's a huge lesson, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is, uh, and and it's understandable. I mean, I call it the gift. I, I say when I ask somebody if they're going to give somebody a gift, I say, "What's the gift?" I say, "It's the gift of corrective feedback," mm-hmm. and um, for me, that's the way I view it nowadays. So you hadn't been open to that. You combine that with insecurity. I, I can push myself, put myself when I was young, getting feedback as well. I'd push back. Yeah. I think now a lot of it was insecurity because yeah. I thought I had my shit together. I was trying to project that I did, but underneath it, it really made me struggle when I got firm feedback. Now it's a gift, like you say. Yeah. I, I, I want to get more feedback about how I can improve, what I can do better, rather than people just saying, oh, mate, we love it, and then walking away and saying, that was shit. Yeah, I, I, from, without a doubt, that was the single biggest turning point in taking me from being here to here was the ability to be open to it and, and actually not just being open to it, actually seeking it and made a huge difference. Mm. What's your phone message now? <laughs> I pause when I ring you because I know you're going to ask, what have you learned? Oh, I've learned nothing. I'm not going to ring him. I learned something. Where's it teach me something? I'll ring next week. It's funny. Like, I mean, uh, um, uh, some of the other days sort of said, oh, you got that same message on. I said, oh, yeah, I better change it. No, no, don't change it. I've had it there for about 15 years. Well, well it's everlasting because you're asking someone about them for a start. So yeah. you make it about the person. What's everyone's favourite topic, Wayne? Yeah. Themselves, just yeah, ask them. True. And then you're actually getting them to think, what have I – so I do. Every time I leave a message and I hear that, I go, oh, shit, yeah. i got to learn more. Yeah. I've got to learn more. Number eight, what do you do to recharge? Recharge the batteries. Um, I, I like – I, I do like um, listening to music. I, I, I do like reading. They're the two things that give me the the, the most um, relaxing downtime. And reading for me with a highlighter pen, because it's the re- books I read are all 
books that are going to help me learn stuff. I can't read a book without a highlighter. No, I love no, you. Same I, as me. Well, yeah. I'd give us five. <laughs> <laughs> My partner, Tony, she just goes, you idiot. Her actual words, you idiot. You know you can read a book without a highlighter. <laughs> we were away last year and I said, no, I need a highlighter to read my book. She said, why don't you just read, babe, no, no, if it's a book with knowledge, like, and then I can flick, I totally get that. But that's why I, I, I'm, I'm not, I just can't, I can't do the ebook thing because oh, no. I need the physical pen. Yeah, yeah. Highlighter pen to. Yeah. Wizards looking yeah. at going, the old guys you have on the chat, you know, <laughs> back in the old days. Also, I find with digital, different with a Kindle, but on my iPad, I, I, I don't have enough focus to not go and check other things if I yeah. switch off. So that's why I love a good old book. Yeah. Yeah. Right, number nine. I'm really curious on this one. What do you do to prepare for key performance moments? So you're doing a presentation, you're in a, the NRL, you're doing the media work or the commentating you do. Tell me, what does that look like? If it's something that, hour, that, 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 I, that I, I know is coming up, I'll take myself into that space beforehand. I do, I do a lot of visualisation hmm. and I'll relax. Breathing is important. Um, I, I breathe myself, breathe to just deep breaths, uh, settle myself down I'll, and I'll – see myself in the outcome that I want to achieve and that's pretty much my the way that I prepare. If I've got a speech that's coming up, I'll I'll settle myself down before. What are the key points? Yeah, so that's 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 what I always did as a player as well when I was playing. Um, and so you do it before the presentation, obviously. If if, it, if it's something that that's structured and planned, uh, I'll I'll do that before the presentation. Yeah. How long before? Uh, usually it's, I'll always get there early. And I'll sit in the car, usually sit stay in my car from driving or if it's flying away somewhere. I'll get wherever it is early, find a quiet place and then go into, into my little routine. Yeah. I think a lesson for that, for anyone listening to this who doesn't prepare for their performance moments, whether it's a meeting with a CEO or a job interview or even going on a date or something important in your personal life, if we just fly from one moment to the next, we, we're not present physically, psychologically. That transition, it's really important. Yeah, and I mean, what I've learned also is to place intentions around what I'm seeking to achieve. So it's, it's yes, I'm visualizing, but I'm visualizing what's the intention, what I want to achieve in that, because that in setting intentions is very much like setting goals, and um, goal setting is grossly underestimated tool that is a key to peak performance. A lot of people don't understand the reticular activating system, how fancy name for the access point to the base of the brain and stuff like that. So, but for me, uh, that setting intentions is really important. I like that. And then the science behind goal setting, so reticular activating system, example is you buy a new car. Yeah. Now, I can remember in Hobart getting a Hilux Ute, column shift. Geez, I felt good. I had a tray. I was going to get a dog, but as an athlete, poor athlete, I didn't have enough uh, money to feed it, Junior. But I suddenly noticed every Toyota Hilux on the right. Yeah. That's reticular activating exactly. system. 100%. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's quite fascinating without confusing people that are watching the podcast, but the experts tell us that there's around about 11 million bits of information coming to the, the non-conscious brain every every second, yeah? And the conscious brain, however, can only handle around about 50 bits per second. So that means we, we only, we're only aware of a fraction of what is actually out there and as in terms of stimulus coming in. So goal setting actually helps us program that bouncer at the nightclub door that's letting in information to the conscious brain as to what gets through and what doesn't get through. 
And so that's why goal setting and setting intentions is really important. You did that well. Have you been a bouncer at a nightclub? You're even, you, you lost your neck. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be a bit bigger. No, no. Actually, I was a doorman when I um, first started, when I started at uni at Balmain Lease Club. Used to be a nightclub up there as well. Oh, yeah. Balmain Lease Club, yeah. It's, um, anyhow, it was back the old days, yeah. Long, long smile when you talk about that. Let's get on to question number 10. What keeps you up at night? Uh, when my newly born granddaughter stays with us, she hasn't as yet, but she will be soonly. Um, I'm sure she'll keep us up a few nights. But um, no, I can pretty learn to compartmentalize. You know, I, I suppose the only thing that, that sort of would keep me up at night or does keep me up at night is if over the years there's been some families with family issues that really does the work stuff i can compartmentalize and put it aside so i've learned to go through a process and i think that's the thing that makes a big difference to be able to to get regular regular consistent sleep when you're when you're busy and under pressure is is have a routine i wind down have a wind down period it must be hard as a father and I don't know if you've spoken about this before, but with Mitchell and some of the challenges, like when he's got the name Pierce for a start, that that was a, a, a heaviness for him initially, I'm sure, until he became Mitchell, not Wayne's son. And then seeing some of what's played out in the media, that, that'd that be really tough as a dad. I, I put myself in your shoes on that to think of what that would be like for one of my kids. That'd be tough. Yeah, it has been over the years, but you know, he, Mitch, Mitch is in a great spot. Um, he's, he's playing doing, well. He's, he's doing well over in France, playing over there at the moment. Yeah, so it's it's interesting being being a dad, yeah, or or a mum, or it doesn't matter how, whether they're this this tall down here or or fully grown. You're, you're always you're always there for them, as you know. Yeah, is it little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems? <laughs> yeah. Is that true? Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> what what I would love to see with with Mitchell and what he's been through, I reckon he'll be a great coach, a great mentor. I really see him owning some of the the mistakes he's made. And then I think he can teach young men, young women so much from his mistakes. So I think that's a real opportunity for him moving forward. Yeah, I, I think Mitch Mitch is a great a great fella, and um, he's he's incredibly talented in terms of the discipline he's chosen to, to go down the path. That's the footy path, but but he's actually learning a lot more about himself, leadership, and he wants to make a difference to kid, to young kids coming through. So I think when he finishes his footy career, he'll he'll, he'll certainly do a lot more in that space. Question 11, which NRL team is Mitchell going to sign up with next year? <laughs> I made that one up. <laughs> <laughs> going to catch you out. <laughs> it would be good to see him come back and finish in the NRL. Yeah, well, I think that's a chance as well. Uh, this is his second year over in France, so see what happens next year. I think there's an option if he wants to stay over there, but I, I would be surprised to see him come back. He's, um, he's playing really good footy, and health-wise, his body's in good shape, so mm. yeah, who knows? Proper question 11, what is your number one productivity tip? How do you bang out what you do? Because I, I do, I see you, your social media, I know you, you're busy in NRL, the work and the commissioner, um, the private work Well, for me, people say you can multitask, but I, I don't believe you can. It's one task at one time. And, and prioritisation is the, the most important thing that I've learned to do. And prioritisation really is around what's the most pressing issue or, or project uh, aspect of the project that needs to be done now that um, is going to make the biggest difference in this moment and and just immerse yourself in that. I think where a lot of people, and I used to get caught up, was I'd start this one, then I'd work on this one over here, and then I'd work on this one over here. And that changing from one to the other actually does inter interrupt with your flow, mm -hmm. and that's that's 
probably best productivity tip I can give. I know you warm up your body and brain of a morning by doing exercise and, and meditation. Do you have a productivity warm up as well? Do you start the day before you are in the office or if you're on the Oh, uh, no, I'll always, whilst um, after I do my meditation of a morning, have breakfast. Then what I'll always do is is I'll always get into unless I've got a head straight off to run a seminar or something like that. If I've got time, if I'm at home, I'll then move into the projects that require the most creativity because I find I'm most creative first up in the morning. So that's pretty much what. So what you I'll do. you look at all your tasks and you go, what requires more yeah. creativity, yeah. big thinking? You do those first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some tasks are pretty much just functional. Other tasks. So the creativity, for example, around a new seminar, I've got a, a new topic seminar, I've got, I've got to run for a client, and um, what's that going to look like? How can, I, how can I get the best out of this particular time that I've got available? And that, that requires, you know, creative input because you've got to you know, sort of think where this should fit, how can I make the best, uh, get the best result? I find it also requires delayed procrastination. I had a phone call before we called up, so we had lunch before recording today. And uh, a bureau I'm working with said, can you send your notes through? The client wants your notes for, for a talk next week. I said, I'm not going to do it until later this week. So can we manage that as well? Because I'm thinking about it, reflecting, talking, and then you come together at the end. Do you yeah. find that as well? It's- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 for sure. And this is where I think the goal setting uh, and opening the brain to all these opportunities that are around, we don't see them unless they're on our radar and, and goal setting helps put it on the radar. You know, quite often... I'll see this something will be will come up and oh well I should that add that into into, into that that will help in this presentation that I've got happening next week. So my point is that yeah it's it's a, an adaptive process. Mm. Question number twelve: Who has been your most influential mentor or mentors? Oh, without a doubt, it was when my dad died. I had a bit of a rough patch for <clears throat> probably about six months, and then. A guy who was a friend of my dad's, his name was was um, Mick Kokas, Mr. Kokas, I used to refer to him as. And he was the, the person who really came into my life that gave me a sense of, deep sense of belief. And he was the one that instilled the confidence in me to to set a goal. And that goal was, was there were two goals. One, initially it was to play for the Tigers which was, and I was 14 years of age at that point, and so I was way off. And the other, the other one was to go to uni, university, because Gough Whitlam, not long before that, had come into parliament and made it free to go to, for kids to go to uni. So Mr. Coco said to me, this is going to be an opportunity for you. No one in my extended family had sort of ever been to uni. So he was the person that, without a doubt, was the, the most the most impressive impressive in terms of a mentor. So he, t- he, t- he set those two goals with you? Yeah, yeah well, uh, he, s- he actually got me to sit. What happened was I was, I was going to be a telecom technician, yeah, because that this was- This is tel- before it was Telstra? Was it this is, Telstra yeah, this, yeah, this is telecom was before Telstra, right? So I was going to be a telecom technician. And um, because my, just, it was one of those things that sort of, um, it was a trade, it worked for the, worked for the government, you know, it was, it was reliable and, and um, anyhow, that was what, what I was going to do. And then my dad died and, and um, had a bit of a rough patch for about six months. And then um, Mr. Kokas sort of, one, one, one day the, he met with me and he, he asked me to, he said, when you go to bed tonight, he said, just have a think about 
what you would dream to, to do if you could dream the biggest dream possible? What would you dare, dare to do? What, what would you dare to do? What would you love to be doing? And I went to bed that night and, um, and all I could think about was, because he said that would make you the happiest person that you could be. And all I could think about was playing for the, for the Balmain Tigers because I was a Tigers supporter and I love my footy. And I couldn't think of any other job that I wanted to do. And you earned a little bit of money then, but it wasn't a full-time job or anything, but that's what I dreamed. So the next day when he, when he came back, he sort of sort of said to me, what is it? Anyhow, he, he, he sat me down the lounge and I sort of said, well, I want to play first grade for the Balmain Tigers. And I took a breath because I thought he'd say, no, I think of something more realistic. And his response to me was when I said, yeah, Mr. Cocos, I want to play for the Balmain Tigers. I went, oh, he said, fantastic, that's awesome. He said, I know how much you love your footy and I know how much your, your, um, your dad loved your footy and all this stuff. And then, um, and then he sat me down said, close your eyes, sat back in the lounge and, and he just talked me through me being a star of the match in the, in the you know, talking about being in the dressing rooms at the, at the, at the Leichhardt Oval and then me being out in the field and making a break and doing this stuff. And then he got me to open my eyes up and said, how do you feel? And I said, fantastic. And he said to me, he said, you better get used to that feeling because that's going to be your destiny. And then, but he says, it's not going to happen. You've got to, we've got to make a plan. And then he came back again a couple of nights later and sat me down and worked on a plan. And, but that, that was the sort of thing that, that he did. And, and this is way before... No, the sort of visualization stuff was way before you had guys like me hanging around for you. Yeah, so right. gurus like you, <laughs> gurus. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that so that was that was something that yeah he had a profound impact on my life. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I, I could feel that when you were saying it. Like, you, how did you feel when you were recalling that story? Because you your face changed, like your eyes. Oh, I mean, I. The interesting thing is that that story as I, I I've shared that story many times when I when I've spoken at, at events and stuff like that but when I think about it I go back into sitting on the lounge and mm. and um, yeah quite interesting yeah I can see it's moving you yeah, yeah for sure we're gonna give you a hug when we finish <laughs> I love that yeah <laughs> and I love the authenticity about that because we see big tough men you know I grew up watching you as the the big number eight. Not so big uh, anymore. I've uh, lost a bit of weight since I played. Yeah. <laughs> but to share that, and we need to have more conversations around this, mate. I was uh, at, at fitness at Balmoral this morning, and one of my mates in that group said on the weekend, one of his best mates took his life on the weekend. And he just said to me, amazing, oh, we need guys to open up more and more. Yeah. And he was like, he was very emotional. I, I love you sharing that because I think we do need to share more of these stories. And we, uh, Gus Wallen's doing a fantastic job in the NRL at the moment where he's talking about yeah, expressing feelings, expressing emotions. We're sometimes not good at it as blokes, are we? We sort of hold it up and yeah, bottle no, it in. We're not, no, we're not very good at it. But um, I think you know, stereotypes starting to break down a little bit. I mean, I don't necessarily not want to share emotions, but I don't want to upset the flow of what the conversation's about. Uh, there is a, an agenda and it's called a loose agenda. Um, Very good. Because if I was like, now let's wrap this up and move on to question yeah. number, the final one. I could feel that. And I've known you for a number of years. And as I said, I you know, grew up watching you. You've got to know you. Uh, I gave you the feedback earlier when I did your PCM course. After two days, I'm like, mate, I want more footy stories. <laughs> it was all it was all the wonderful leadership and science. But that's a real story. And I can just see how much that wonderful man had an impact on your life. 
it's a sliding door moment, isn't it? That if, if he hadn't come along, you think, like, who else would have done that? Well, for you? the funny thing was, it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But the, the funny thing was, it wasn't until I sort of wrote my autobiography the last year that I played that I reflected on what were the key moments in my life that got me on this path, you know? So, uh, and from the biggest adversity, which was my father dying suddenly when I was 14 years of age, from that adversity came this wonderful opportunity and this wonderful man came into my life. And that was something that I'm very grateful for and, and fortunate to have acknowledged because, um, as I said, it wasn't until years later. He, you know, I used to see him regularly and I never really had the opportunity because I wasn't aware of it to sort of thank him for the impact that he had. But I did meet up with him many years later and because um, he moved interstate and had a conversation with him about it and, um, yeah, it was really good. I bet he loved that. He did, yeah. Unfortunately, he passed away during COVID and he was – over the border in Queensland, and I couldn't see him go to his funeral, so I couldn't, um, didn't really see him much, but I couldn't see him, um, uh, so I couldn't attend the funeral. That was pretty, pretty sad. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Do you think being grandfather has made you a little bit more in touch with your emotions as well? Has it changed you? I've, I've sort of become more in, in touch with my emotions as probably over the last 10 years, just as I, the more I've got into the psyche of of um, personalities and um, distressed behaviours that can prevent us from going into that space at times. So, yeah, but for me it's one of the big things that I encourage in the seminars that I run for businesses is is connectivity and psychological safety. And, and to do that, it helps if you're a leader, to actually big help if you're a leader. And as a facilitator, you've got to be a leader to actually be open and and express emotion where emotion is appropriate um so for me in the role that i that i am in now when running some facilitating seminars it's really important for me to be authentic and and, and share stories because short stories elicit emotion in other people as well mm. Mm. final question what is your definition of high performance high performance is very very much an individual thing i suppose it depends on the context um, it's a pretty broad question, but in terms of context, high performance for an individual is that individual preparing and accessing the resources that will help them achieve at or near their personal best in whatever discipline they're targeting. Now, I've got one final question for you. In our conversation today, is there a question you would like me to ask you to finish or do you want to flip it? Is there a question you want to ask me? Yeah, I would actually like to ask you a question, Andrew. Awesome. You've, doing, you've done an incredible amount of um, study and, and, and research in the performance space. For you, what is the absolute epicenter of a peak performer? What, 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 what is it that really, if you tear everything back, what is it at the center that uh, makes a champion. I got a oh, that makes a champion. Or, well, or, is that the epicenter of a of a, a, a champion or a peak performer? Ooh, okay. Can I answer that on two levels? Because that last yeah. bit was a flip. I thought, yeah. oh, yeah. yeah the- well, you've been throwing some curveballs <laughs> at me. <laughs> you've done a bit of media, have you, over the years? It was actually funny when we started. I said, look, you've done a bit of this, but you know, camera wide, and you just said, yeah, I know how this works. <laughs> 
Uh, first of all, I've got to quote Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi with his work on yeah. flow. Yeah. So I think what makes a great performer, and, and like you, we get to work with some wonderful people, with athletes, with business people, entertainers, uh, scientists, so a whole range of high performers. And a high performer is anyone who's you know, really, really kicking goals in what they do. At the epicenter of that is flow, where time transcends. So yeah. you watch a ballerina and she's out or he's out and you know, there can be thousands of people watching mm. and they don't know. Yeah. You watch a, a footballer, you, know, you watch a, a musician, you watch a CEO doing a market update and she's in absolute flow. That's someone who's done the work. Yeah. yeah. So they've done the hard yards. And back to what I said about this sort of drop and drag society, I love in high performance seeing someone who's in control of what they're doing and they've done the hard work. And then often when you ask them, how'd you go, Wayne? I'm sure your best game, mate. How yeah. was it? I don't know. <laughs> I yeah, don't really right. remember it. It yeah. was just so easy. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. easy. So that's the first one. The second one was a bit curly. I'd say the second thing is about really, really making a difference. Yeah. And, and using that for a greater cause. And that's where I think someone goes on from like you've done to play football, but then learn what you have about high performance to give back. So I think it's being in the zone, but then how do you give back? I think that's we bring up a very good point there because I think far too many sports people, because sport generally is, is a discipline that you can't do to your old, right? And I think far too many sports people – when they finish their sports career, that's it. They're done. Mm. They don't realise that what they've done and accrued and the skills they've learnt during their sporting career is something that they can take forward to offer value to themselves and to others in other areas beyond their sporting career. I mean, that's what I was fortunate enough to understand, but there's a lot of sports people that I see that don't actually join the dots and sort of see how that value that they've mm. accrued can be transcended into another currency and offered somewhere else and, mm. and, and be of value somewhere else to other people as well. Mm. I, I think of it as having careers. Yeah. So you, know, you can have a career as an athlete or it might be at university or trading and then you go for another career and another. Mm. Yeah. So I don't think it's set and forget. I think you can evolve and have yeah, careers. Yeah, absolutely. That was a tough question. I might uh, scratch that off the list for future ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I was sweating. <laughs> how did I go? How was my answer? You did very well, mate. That was really, really good. <laughs> right, um, what can I do to improve? So you're the media. Like, What, what, what makes a good interview? Because this is one we're getting asked a lot. So you've been interviewed heaps. What makes a good interview and I suppose what makes a really bad interview? Well, what, firstly, what makes a bad interview is someone that has a set of questions and I'm going to go in that order because, as you know, stuff comes up. You've got to be listening to that. And, and if you don't flow, talking about flow, you don't flow off that and, and, and pick up a point and go with, in that direction. It could be totally different to what you got down here than the people that want to, want to sort of sit and, and, and just go to what they do here. And, and they'll ask you something that you just answered in that question, but you weren't listening to my answer. So you re-asked it and it just- Can, can, you, like, can you say that again in two pages? <laughs> <laughs> you just answered one. No, I get what you're saying though. So it's, so it's the fluidity? Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 the, it's the flow of it. I mean, so that makes a great interview and, and yours has been really, really good, yeah? Really good. The crappy interview is the one, the person that, that sort of isn't listening. You can tell they're not listening because they've asked you a question. You just half answered in that or you just answered in that, in that previous mm -hmm. statement. And I, yeah, that's, for me, the difference between a really good interview and a, and a not so good interview. Because yeah. mm, this is a learning and I, I know you, but it's great talking to people. But you do see sometimes people 
who've done lots of this. Like, yeah, you would have done thousands of interviews yeah. over the years. And yeah. you can see sometimes press play if people ask normal yeah, questions. that's right. Yeah. No, no, mate, you, you, that's really good. Because, and the thing is too, because you know your topic, right, in, and you know this performance space, which is what you, we're talking about, you don't feel the need to go along this path as tightly as what some people would. If you don't mm. know the space, then you're going to, oh, shit, I've got to ask this question next. Mm. So, yeah, and, and at the end of the day, a good interview is, is something that feels like a natural conversation where you know what you want to achieve, uh, you're stimulating the conversation, and I'm, I'm just just flowing with you. I mean, that, that that's that's what is a satisfying interview for me. Uh, but I think it's also something that I like to, to watch in people. When somebody asks questions that aren't relevant or mm. that have already been answered, shows they haven't been listening. And that's, yeah. Thank you for bringing high performance today. So we've spoken about you and your upbringing. I love the authenticity. And while we started with that story, we've ended just for how much that meant to you. So we've come full circle. We've spoken about a lot about what you've learned, leadership in sport and how you've transferred that to the corporate world. We've learned a lot about your thoughts on burnout and the evolution and you know how you adapt and we need to have recovery and then performance uncovered. I am sure there are some people who want to get in touch with you. Might be to book your band. They might have a big gig coming up. Uh, but I mentioned, like I've done your course, PCM. You do keynotes, you do coaching. We, we work in a similar world. I find out more people that you coach along the way. They might just mention, I've done this with Junior. You've got tentacles everywhere. For people who would love to connect with you, what's the best way for them to make that connection? Uh, if they yeah, go to my website and it's waynepierce.com.au and uh, they can get in touch with me via email or um, there's a number, phone number there as well. Now, when I asked you a couple of years ago, are you doing much on social? You went, nah, no, nah, I'm not really doing social, mate. That's for the young kids. You've dialed it up during COVID. Yeah, I see a well, lot I more took activity. your tip there, Maisie. I took your tip. I'm doing it very active on LinkedIn now. Facebook, I'm still not, I'll leave that for the uh, the younger ones. Um, but LinkedIn, I find, is incredibly valuable. And um, that's, yeah, it's a lot of fun, actually. Well, mate, thank you for today. And for anyone who does want to get in contact, definitely go to your website. There's so much more than we've even spoken about today. So Wayne Pierce, thank you. Thanks, Maisie. Come give me a hug. <laughs> oh, champion. <laughs> thank you for sharing. Thank Wizard, we're back in the studio. We've had time to process that interview with Wayne. Wow, just the openness, the rawness, the authenticity towards yeah. the end. But why don't you start, mate? What, what was your learning or what did you take from that discussion? Yeah, I was just shocked about the way Wayne was so open and emotional. I mean, in particular, when he was talking about his son uh, playing overseas and uh, the way, you know, he, he obviously wants him to come back in, to Australia and could see him more and he was getting a bit choked up there how proud he was of him and then he was talking about you know I, you can't see it on the audio feed obviously but his face absolutely lit up talking about his granddaughter he, he was beaming when he was saying, talking about her uh, so he's looking forward to that clearly and yeah even he was saying he, he quit a head coaching job at the Tigers mostly to be with his family more and you can just tell that's like a, that's a big thing for him his family and I think we've had the best answer to a a performance uncovered question yet when he was talking about his mentor that was uh, that sent me i was not expecting that and, and i know wayne's an open guy and you know, we've had lots of conversations about football evolving even people's opinion of football is evolving that they are mm. not just men and women who smash each other on the pitch that they are humans and they're doing a whole lot of great work in the community and you can see with him as well just the passion he has 
what he does with everything is he pours his heart into it. But yeah, that the response to that question about his mentor, mm. well, it was just beautiful watching him, like feeling that in the room. Absolutely, yeah. I was tearing up a bit. I could see you were tearing up a bit. It was, uh, it was got quite deep there. Yeah, it got really deep. And speaking of people's perceptions changing, I grew up thinking, you know, NRL players are all just big bluff heads. All they do is go out and party and drink and then smash each other on the weekends playing footy. But So we've had a few footy players come in now. We've had George Gregan, uh, we had Laney and Reedy on, and now Wayne. And it's absolutely changed my perception of footballers. And then he, also hearing the work you're doing with Parramatta and uh, Manly. Yeah, I don't know whether it's just a new breed of footballers or if it's just something that's changed in the culture over time. But yeah, you can definitely tell they're just, they're really challenging those stereotypes. Like I did a bit of research into Reedy after that podcast and some of the community work he's done is amazing. One of my goals with working with athletes is that when they finish playing sport, invariably everyone does, that they assimilate back into society. Mm. So yeah, I want them to be a great athlete, but I want them to be an even better person. Now, when you've got George Gregan, Sean Lane, Reid Marnie, and also Wayne Pierce, you're looking at some pretty evolved human <laughs> beings. But there is a shift. I think there's a shift in society as well. Like I look at my, my kids, what they talk about now, they're much more in touch with their emotions, mm. with their feelings. And in sport as well, I think NRL, rugby union, AFL has been tarnished unfairly because you read it in the paper about when a player stuffs up, but you don't read all the countless hours of work they're doing in the community or the wonderful work they're doing on charity. Players don't seek to get publicity on that, so bad news sells. So yeah, there's still some players in all codes, men and women, who make mistakes, which gets tabloid fodder. But a lot of athletes do a, a wonderful amount of work for the community and for charity that you never hear about. So it, it is lovely that we're bringing some of those stories out to people. Yeah, I mean, with social media now, everyone's got one and you, even the clubs, you see a lot more behind the scenes sort of work that they do. And a lot of that does end up being charity work or even just them you know, hanging out or training. They seem a lot more you know, emotionally intelligent or a bit more clued into You're that dancing side. around this. You, I, I, what you're trying to say, I think, is that they are smarter or up than yeah. you thought they were. That's it. Yeah. I knew you were dancing. Is that why you were stumbling on that? <laughs> yeah. I just, I don't want the next six foot, 250 kilo football player to come in hearing that and want to punch me in the head. They won't, is it? They won't. <laughs> so what about you? What did you take out of that? I know you've known Wayne for a long, long time now. So what are your thoughts? There were some parts of that conversation I expected, Wizard, and there were some parts that were totally unexpected. The first bit, it was really nice just to catch up or to reflect on the impact that he had on me, because you could see the emotion that Wayne had with Mr. Kokos. And I think with mentors, it's amazing if you can tell someone the impact that they've had on you when you have that moment. So it was really nice that I could tell Wayne that. And he said when we finished recording that, you really appreciated me saying that. I said, well, mate, it's true. I'm not just making this shit up. I, I, I really do go back to that moment. I can close my eyes with I can see us in the quadrangle area at St. Joseph's College in the old area. And there was this guy up the front who was playing for Australia, New South Wales and the Tigers and not drinking. And I, I was a bit of the outsider with my mates. So I was a runner, middle distance runner for a start. And I wasn't drinking and wanting to party on the weekends. It was the first role model in sport I'd heard to really back that up. It was like... Huh. So I, I, I was totally attuned to that message. That was the first thing. It was really nice to reconnect and to acknowledge how much of an influence he'd been on me. The second part yeah, was Mr. Cocos and just that emotion that came from mine. I wasn't expecting that. I, I know he's very open. Yeah, we have some great conversations when I do catch up with him. But that's a rawness I've never seen with him. Mm, yeah, that was, that was really powerful, I think. 
I also acknowledge during the interview, like while we're different, you know, different sports, different backgrounds, very different backgrounds, but there are some similarities and that learn, unlearn, relearn. I really like that framework. From ringing Wayne's mobile phone, getting the voice message, and I wasn't joking about that. A few times I've got a voice message and I've thought, oh shit, I'm going to hang up. <laughs> but I like that notion of learning, but then coming back and going, what can I improve? Not getting stuck in that same game. So it is the unlearning and relearning. I really love that framework and I'm sure that's going to either be in the title or it will be in the bullet points on the learning parts from from this podcast. Anything else from you? You were you I could see you tapping away writing heaps of notes when we were recording that. Yeah, and I mean similar to, to that with the learn, unlearn, relearn. I thought it was interesting Wayne's definition of that for coaches, he was saying a lot of them do it to themselves. They sort of put that pressure on themselves. There is obviously a lot of outside influence and a lot of outside pressure, but it's the coaches who have that mentality that put it on themselves, all that pressure. They're the ones that crack and do end up having to take a break or leave the field entirely if if it gets bad enough. But he said that I couldn't help but think of Albert Bandura and self-efficacy, which is the power you have on the situation you're in. So what Wayne was saying, he Mm. feels it's the coaches, that is self-efficacy. What, what have you got at your disposal to help you with that? What other people? He was mentioning that example, Wayne Bennett. He's been coaching yeah. for 35, nearly 40 years, and he hasn't burned out because he's elevated himself above the minutiae, a lot of the detail, getting stuck in the politics, you know, all the work on the tools, and it's more of a leadership, more of a mentoring role. That was a really interesting take on burnout. Yeah, yeah, especially when he's talking about Wayne Bennett. He's like, he does have, he's got all those assistants, which I'm sure all the other coaches have. It's just how much do they put into those assistants? He, he uses them. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and one last thing, I just thought it was crazy that someone playing rugby in the 80s didn't drink or smoke or both. That's mental. You're making this sound like a Bluey episode. Have you seen Bluey yet, the kids' show? I have, yes. I've uh, learned it's a pretty good tool when I'm looking after my nieces and just chuck it on the TV. But Weezer, it was the 80s. Everyone played rugby league and they drank and smoke, apart from Wayne Pierce. Like, who is this guy? Yeah, it was... Uh, what, what a great role model. What a great lesson to be yourself, to be authentic, to mm. own that. Yeah, I think definitely one of the things I've gotten out of all these interviews we've done is that all of these people are just comfortable being themselves. It might have taken a little bit of time to get there, but they've figured it out and they just love being who they are. Which is a form of performance intelligence, understanding how to adapt your physical, your psychological, your emotional state, and also that state of connecting with others or that social state. Lots of great learnings. Wizard, really enjoying this with you as well. Learnings, you you look at this in a different way. And when I listen to this back, I go, yeah, Wizard, that's a take I, I didn't appreciate or I didn't think about. So loving doing the reviews with you. 